you'd like to call your attention this evening to that uh, great and famous incident in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, which is recorded in the portion of Scripture we read at the beginning in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. Perhaps verse 18 will concentrate our attention upon the dramatic nature of the incident. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now we are met together on Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday evening. And uh, like uh, most in the Christian church, probably throughout the whole world, we are going to look together at the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the meaning of this day. That is why this day is observed in the Christian church and has been through centuries. As Good Friday reminds us, of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross on Calvary's hill. So this day reminds us of his rising again from the dead. Now the question that inevitably offers itself to us is this. What does this day mean to this modern world? What does it mean, for instance, to the vast majority of people in this country without going any further? this very evening. And we have only to ask the question, of course, to know that it is our last true to say that for the vast majority this day has no meaning at all. It's just a holiday, not a holy day, just a day like any other holiday, when the weekend, the weekend when people cease from work and go home, visit their families and visit one another. Just a kind of bank holiday. And so it is regarded by the vast majority. But, and this is the thing that I'm interested in this evening, if you go to these people to whom this day represents nothing at all, really, apart from just a holiday in that way, and ask them why that is their attitude towards it. Ask them if they've ever heard of the message of the church, and they'll probably say they have. And then you ask them, well, why don't you believe it? Why is it of no interest to you? Why do you say that you couldn't care less as to what it's all about? If you put that question to them, you will probably find that they will tell you that they don't believe this. They don't believe that this Jesus of Nazareth who was killed on Good Friday and buried, put in a grave, they don't believe that he literally came out of that grave in, a, in the body and appeared to certain people and then ascended to heaven. They say that uh, it's just laughable, quite ridiculous. They have no interest in it at all. It's just one of those fairy tales, they say. And they go further and they will tell you that they don't believe it, that it's got nothing to do with them, and that they regard it as a pure irrelevance in this modern world, uh, something as, which is of no value at all and of no practical importance. And their reason for that is that they are men of the 20th century, and being men of the 20th century, they've got a certain knowledge and certain information. 
and they have a certain understanding. They say that they've rejected all this simply because they now are in a position to know certain things which people formerly didn't know. Of course, they say, we know that a hundred years ago probably most people believed this sort of thing. Two hundred years ago, still more. And as you go back, the number is greater and greater. But they say it's all, it was all due to their ignorance. They just didn't know. They hadn't the advantages that we have. They hadn't the scientific knowledge that we possess. In other words, they believed all this because of their ignorance. And we don't believe it because of our knowledge, our understanding, and our scientific information. Now, I think you'll agree with me that that is the typical modern uh, attitude uh, towards this great fact which is commemorated today, namely the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, now then, what have we to say to this? Well, my one remark this evening is this, that there is nothing new at all in such an attitude. Now, this to me is the perpetual tragedy of this modern age. That people who deny this gospel and reject its message think that that is the very hallmark of modernity. That this is the thing that makes them 20th century men. The truth being, of course, that there is nothing new whatsoever about this attitude. And that is why I'm calling your attention to this portion of scripture that is found in this 17th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Here we have the Apostle Paul paying his first visit to the famous city of Athens. And he just found that the attitude of the average person in Athens 1900 years ago to the resurrection of Jesus Christ was just exactly and precisely what it is at this present time. Now, this is something to me that surely ought to shake anybody who's in this congregation and who doesn't believe in the resurrection. Whatever is obvious, it's obvious before I go any further, is this, isn't it? That this has got nothing whatsoever to do with the 20th century. It's got nothing to do with modern knowledge, modern learning, modern scientific development. Nothing at all. Because the very self-same attitude was to be found 1900 long years ago. Very well then. I deduce from that something like this. That the position of the world is still what it was then. And that all our advance in knowledge doesn't make the slightest difference to men as men, to the needs of men, and to the truth of God that has come to men and which I'm having the privilege of offering to you this evening in expounding this particular section of the scripture. There is nothing new at all. So you see the fact that this is a very old book doesn't mean that it's out of date. It doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. Somebody may say to me, now wait a minute. This is, after all, 1961. And how can a book which is as old as that possibly have anything of value to give to me face to face as I am with the problems of the world this very evening. Now, I'm going to try to answer that question. Let's do it like this. Let's first of all take a glance at this great city of Athens in which the Apostle Paul was preaching. 
And it's clear, as you see, that what he was preaching was Jesus and the resurrection. These uh, Epicureans and Stoics, these philosophers, encountered him and some said, what will this babbler say? What's this fellow talking about? This man who's being, picking up a bit of knowledge and information here and there and is putting it before us. What, 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 what is this babbler saying? Others said, you know, they said, he seems to be a set of forth of some strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, let's go and have a look at the great city of Athens, not as it is now, but as it was 1900 years ago and just a little bit more. Very well, what do we find? Well, we find that it was a very learned city, a very proud city. Athens, after all, was the seat of learning of the ancient world. Rome was very famous for its law, for its uh, civic government and arrangements. The world has never known planners like the Romans. They knew all about the devolution of government and about planning, road making, and all the rest of it. But the Greeks, they were particularly famous for their philosophy. They had produced the greatest philosophers that the world has ever known. And Athens was the great center, the capital, the mecca of this great uh, philosophical learning and teaching. So she was a great city and a very proud one. She had great and magnificent buildings. People still go and look at the ruins of them and they're worth seeing. Well, there she was with her great palaces, buildings, pantheon and all the rest of them. And this great pride in knowledge and in learning. A busy city, a very beautiful city and a very wonderful city. Now, intellectually, she was divided up, as the record tells us, to, to these two main parties. There were other subsidiary groups, but these were the two main groups, these uh, Epicureans and Stoics. They were the great intellects, the, the teachers of the people, the philosophers. Now, what did they believe? Well, let's look at them. The Stoics were a very remarkable people, there's no doubt about that at all. They were a very serious people. They said life is a very difficult thing. This world is a very difficult place to live in. They said, you know, it takes a great deal to go through this life and through this world without failing. And they said a man can only do it as long as he takes himself in hand and exercises an iron discipline over himself. He's got to be very serious. He's got to hold himself in. He's got to watch his feelings in particular. Then, they said, he may just get through. But in addition to that, they did hold a view of a kind of future life. But they did not believe in personal immortality. They had a belief that somehow or another the spirit of man went on beyond death. It was a very shadowy and nebulous kind of existence. We didn't go on as individuals, but they did believe that there was a kind of immortality of the soul in general, and the souls of men perhaps became absorbed in some great absolute. They didn't believe in personal immortality, whereas they did believe in this vague, nebulous kind of future life. They were pantheists, which means that they said God is in everything. God is in matter. God is in buildings, trees, everything. God is everywhere and in everything. So man is a part of all this, and he goes back and sinks again into that kind of absolute. Now, that was the belief of the Stoics. What about the Epicureans? Well, they were materialists. 
and more or less irreligious materialists. To them the good life was to be found in pleasures, pleasures of the senses. That was the way their slogan was, eat, drink and be merry. That to them was the good life and that was the essence of wisdom. They didn't believe at all in a future realm. They were utter skeptics as regard that. They said that life was limited entirely to this world and it was to be a life of the senses. The world was a world of chance without God, without any meaning, without any rhyme or reason whatsoever. Now that was the belief of the Epicureans. And so we are told that this great city of Athens in its learning and outlook was divided very largely between these two groups. Now there was one thing in common. They were both seeking for peace of mind. They were all out for happiness. They said, you know, in the midst of all this battle of life, if only one could find peace, how can one find it? Well, as I say, the Stoic said, you'll find it by discipline and by courage. The other said, you'll find it by pleasure and the use of pleasure. Make the most of it while you're here. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Now, they were both out for peace. They were both out for happiness for the individual. That was the controlling intellectual outlook. But you remember we are told a very interesting thing. Though that was true of these Athenians, it was also true to say that their city was more or less cluttered up with a number of temples temples to the various gods. The apostle turns to them and says, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too religious, superstitious here. It means religious. And they were highly religious. They'd built temples to every conceivable god. The god of war, the god of peace, the god of love, and all the various gods. Why did they do that? Well, they said this. They said, you know, there is no doubt at all that there are certain unseen forces influencing this life and this world. What are they? Well, they said, they are these gods. And they are the gods that are controlling the destinies of men. So they said, there's only one thing to do. We must please them. We must try to placate them. So they had put up their temples to every known god and they'd got a list of them and they'd got a very strict law about it. If you worshipped a god that wasn't in their list, you could be punished. That was why probably they took hold of the apostle Paul. He seemed to be set a setter forth of some strange god. They said, who is this god? He's not in the list. It isn't permissible, it isn't legal. You see, there were so many of them, they'd had to control it a little bit. And so they'd got a list of the gods. The place was cluttered up with temples to the various gods. And then, do you remember the other interesting thing? Amidst these temples, Paul noticed one that attracted him in particular. There was a temple, and it had got this inscription over it. Not Mercury, Mars, or Jupiter, but just this. The unknown God. What did this mean? Most significant. Well, you see, what it meant was this. They said, now, we've covered every god we know about, and we've got them in the list. But having done that, they had a terrible, uncomfortable feeling that there was another god at the back of them all. There was another god that seemed to be more powerful than them all, a god whom they couldn't find. They couldn't give him a name, and yet they knew something of his power. And the best they could do, therefore, was to call him the unknown god. 
a god behind the known gods. And they put up a temple to him. And they were trying to worship him also as best they could and to take their offerings and their sacrifices to him, the temple to the unknown god. There's only one other thing that I want to remind you about these Athenians. It's a very significant thing. It's here in brackets in verse 21. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Oh, what a significant statement. Here they were, you see, the best philosophy that the world can command. Every conceivable God catered for, even this unknown God. And yet here they are spending their time either to tell or to hear some new thing. Why? Well, because they were not very satisfied with the things that they knew. There was a great dissatisfaction. There was much unhappiness. Secular writers tell us that at this time, suicide was increasing at an alarming rate. And many of the philosophers themselves were committing suicide. Here they were, you see, with all this learning and all this glorious architecture with all their sports, their Olympic games, their marathon races, all their cultivation of the human form and, and its appearance and so on, in spite of all these benefits. They spent their time in either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's always a sign of a dissatisfied people. I wonder whether this is it. I wonder whether this is going to help us. Going the round from one thing to the next. Ah, here's a new theory. What's this? We haven't heard of this. All they went after it. Has this man got some comfort or peace to give us? You see, they couldn't find it in the things they'd got. That was the great and the famous city of Athens. Would it not be almost insulting, my friends, to suggest to you at this point that what I've really been telling you about and describing to you is nothing but the modern world. It's identical, isn't it? Don't you recognize the Stoics and the Epicureans today? Well, if you've got a wireless or a television, you must be very familiar with them. They are the chief representatives of modern thought. Stoics and Epicureans. Those who believe in morality and discipline. Those who don't and say, let's have a good time. Don't waste your time. You'll never solve the problem. The essence of wisdom is to enjoy yourself. The people who live for pleasure and for happiness only. And the others who try to understand. Here it is. The world tonight is divided up between the Stoics and the Epicureans. And the world tonight is as proud of its knowledge as the Athenians were. There's no difference. The Athenians were as proud of their culture and their knowledge as we are in this country this evening. The people who are outside the church and outside Christ and who boast about the learning and the knowledge and the understanding and the culture. It's an exact repetition. Yes, but you see, side by side with all that are all the cults that are so obvious in the modern world, and not only the cults, but the superstitions. The cults are doing good business today. They're thriving. People are running after them. Why? Well, for the same old reason that there's no satisfaction, there's no rest, there's no peace. The world is unhappy, and like the Athenians, 
The world spends its time today neither to tell nor to hear some new thing, a new idea, a new teaching. Wonderful, people will rush after it. You announce any new teaching and you'll get a crowd. Ah, oh, they say, I wonder whether this is it. Charlatans can succeed very well with these things. Not only in remedies for our physical ills, but in remedies for our minds and for our hearts. Oh, there's nothing more obvious in the world tonight than the unhappiness of men and women, the way they'll clutch at any straw, the way they'll believe in anything. You see, that's the sort of thing that produced a dictator like Hitler. It was this utter failure, the feeling that everything was hopeless. Up gets a man who said, follow me, I'll be your leader, I'll lead you out to triumph and to peace and to joy. They said, why not? Why not give him a chance? We've tried everything else, nothing else. They, they listened. They said, it must be all right. Some people warned them. No, no, they said, it's all right, give him a chance. Some new thing. This seemed to be it. And so men will believe almost anything, as long as it's plausible, either to tell or to hear some new thing. The world, therefore, you see, is full tonight of philosophy and of cults and of superstition and of this desire for something new and some fresh excitement, anything to get away from the problem, anything to escape from life and its harsh reality, anything that will give us peace and some hope in a world that's becoming increasingly dark. The world this evening is exactly as it was when Paul visited Athens 1900 long years ago. And somebody says, what about Christianity? Christianity, this, uh, this babble. What this babbler, what they're talking about, some Jesus who's, they say, has risen from the dead. What's this babbler going to say? What's the Christian church got to say at a time like this? With all these terrible problems, are you really just going to give us this old story once more? This babbling, we are tired of it. What will this babbler say? However, they had the sense to take hold of the apostle and to lead him up to Areopagus and to ask him to explain what all this was about. It was partly, as I've told you, a judicial trial, but they were also interested to hear about this new religion and this new God that he apparently was talking about. So with this curious admixture of law and of curiosity, something new and so on, they took hold of Paul and took him up to Areopagus and asked him to speak. And the apostle preached to them. And what did he preach? Well, he just went on doing what he'd already been doing in the synagogue and in the marketplace where people met together and discussed things. He just again preached Jesus and the resurrection. The same thing. Now, the question I've got to ask is this. Why did he do it? Why am I trying to do it feebly this evening? Why should this still be done? Has this any relevance to us? Or are we just perpetuating some old custom and tradition? Is Christianity but an anachronism in the modern world? Or is it as the Apostle Paul tried to show the Athenians, and as I, God willing in the power of the Spirit tonight, would like to show anybody who has never seen it hitherto, that this is the most urgently relevant message in the whole world at this present moment. But let me put it like this. Why did he preach Jesus and the resurrection? The first answer is he did so because it's a fact. Simply because he was announcing a fact. In other words, you see, his reply to these people who think he's a babbler, and what they meant by babbler was this. It was a term to represent a seed gatherer. There were lots of hack orators in the ancient world, these men who made a profession out of philosophy and out of speaking. 
They did it then, do you see, in the marketplace. They do it now on the television, same thing. They made a living out of it. And uh, they picked up a bit of information there and another bit there. You know, they get it out of books and they put it out before us. Uh, It was done in the ancient world. Exactly the same thing. Babylon. Now, said the apostle, you've completely misunderstood this. He said, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a traveling philosopher. And he wasn't, of course. He had been brought up as a Pharisee, but uh, he's now going around the world making an announcement. He's making a declaration. He's a man who's got a proclamation to make. And what he's talking about is not a view of life, not a theory, but a fact. And the fact is that Jesus of Nazareth had literally risen from the dead that he had been there in Nazareth preaching for three years, that he'd been condemned by the Jewish authorities and by the Roman authorities, and that he'd been nailed on a tree, that he had died, that they'd buried him in a grave, that they'd sealed the grave, having rolled a stone onto its mouth, that they'd put soldiers to guard it, but that in spite of that, The stone had been rolled away, and this Jesus who had died and who had been buried had gone out of the grave in the body, and had appeared unto certain of his own followers in various places. A fact, not an idea, not a concept, but a literal, actual, hard, brute fact. And the apostle was at pains to tell these people in Athens that he really was preaching about Jesus, And the resurrection, simply because it was to him the most amazing and astounding fact that had ever happened in the history of the human race. Now let's remember the the story. Look at this man, this preacher, the Apostle Paul. What are the facts about him? Well, they're these. He, as I've reminded you, was a Jew. And he'd been brought up and trained for the work and occupation of a Pharisee one of the authorities on the Jewish law amongst the people. And as such, he had heard about Jesus of Nazareth, but he hated everything he heard. He said, who's this fellow? He's a carpenter. What can he know? He's never been trained as a a Pharisee. What does this man know about the law? He's no knowledge at all. He's an artisan. He's a commoner. He comes from Galilee. He's never sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Like all the Pharisees, He hated Jesus Christ. He regarded him as an utter blasphemer. And as he tells us repeatedly in this book of Acts, he thought he was doing God's will by trying to put an end to Christianity and to exterminate the Christian church. And he did it with his own characteristic zeal and vehemence and thoroughness. To him, he was serving God in trying to destroy Christianity. And this nonsense about this Jesus having risen from the dead was to him the greatest of all nonsense and the height of blasphemy. And yet here he is in the city of Athens preaching that very fact. What made him do so? And there's only one answer to this. He had got proof positive that this was a fact. On the road to Damascus, he had realized that what he had been saying was a lie, a denial of the truth. This Jesus of Nazareth, who had risen and had returned to heaven, appeared unto him, giving him absolute proof. 
that he had indeed risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and to the glory. Well, now this changed the man's entire life, of course. Here he is confronted by this fact that there has been one person in this world who has conquered death and the grave and has come up the other side. Here is one who has gone through death and has risen from the dead in the body. It revolutionized his life. It changed his whole outlook. He became a preacher of this. And so he tells them in Athens that he's preaching this because it's a fact. He's not the setter forth of some strange doctrine. He's not the purveyor of yet another philosophy. He's not the expounder of some great philosophical teaching. He says, I'm here just to tell you that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. He died, he was buried, but he literally came out of the grave in the body and revealed himself to chosen witnesses and finally to me. A fact. But of course he didn't leave it at that. He went on to show them the meaning and the significance of the fact. And that is what made him preach, you see. Listen to this. While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. He couldn't keep still. You see, he'd had trouble in a previous city and he'd gone on on his own. He'd almost had to escape for his life and he was waiting for his friends to come, intending not to do anything until they'd arrived. So he just walked round Athens as a sort of sightseer, waiting for his companions. But you know, he couldn't hold out any longer. His spirit was stirred in him. He felt an agony in his soul. He said, I must preach to these people. Why? Well, to him this was such a terrible tragedy that these people should be wholly given to idolatry, that they should be in such darkness and in such danger. So he began to dispute in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. He said, I can't keep still. He knew that he was doing a very dangerous thing. He might be arrested. He might be put to death. He can't help it. He's so sorry for these people. He's heartbroken for them. He says, I must tell them. I know something that can make all the difference to them as it has done to me. He was stirred in his spirit. He couldn't refrain. So he tells them about Jesus and the resurrection. This extraordinary fact. Yes, but he wants them to see the meaning of the fact. And what is the meaning? Well, he tells us. Let me just put it in headings before you. This Jesus is the Son of God. You see, the resurrection proves that. Here is the first and the only one who has risen from the dead. Not resuscitated, but risen from the dead. He's passed through death and up the other side. It had never happened before. Here is the very first. And it's a fact. Paul knew it was a fact. He'd seen him. He'd met him. Jesus had spoken to him from the glory on the road to Damascus. He knows it's a fact. And it was that fact that convinced him once and forever that the Jesus whom he had despised was none other than the Lord of glory, the Son of God. Jesus had always said that. He'd always claimed that. He had said he was the Son of God. He had said that he wasn't only a man, that he'd come from the Father, that the Father had sent him. He claimed to be equal with God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. That was all his claim. You'll read it in the four Gospels. But Paul and others hadn't believed it, but he came to believe it when he saw him. 
The resurrection is the final proof of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. The Old Testament prophets in prophesying about the coming Messiah had said that he was going to be crucified, that he'd die, but that he'd rise again. Here is one who's done it. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. He is the Son of God. Now then, the apostle says, listen, I'm coming to tell you about the Son of God who appeared as Jesus of Nazareth. I know he's Son of God. He's risen from the dead. Listen, says Paul. Why listen? Well, here's the answer. You good people of Athens, he said, have made it perfectly plain and clear that you're seeking for the unknown God. Your very temple that I've noticed proves that. You've been trying to find him. Your philosophers have sought to arrive at him. They can't find him. They've done their best. You can go no further than call him the unknown God. You know that at the back of everything there is this being. But you can't find him. You don't know him. You can't speak to him. You're lost. He's the unknown God. The apostle in writing to the church at Corinth afterwards reminds them of that. You remember when he says, The world by wisdom knew not God. You know, some of the philosophers got very near. Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, they got very near, but they never got there. They had a feeling that there must be some almighty creator, but they didn't get there. They didn't know him. They couldn't find him. The world, by wisdom, knew not God. They'd done their utmost. They couldn't get there. The unknown God. Listen, says Paul. I want to tell you that there is a way whereby this unknown God can be found and can be known. There is only one way, he said, but there is one way, and I want to tell you about it. And so he begins to tell them. This Jesus, who is Son of God, why did he come into the world? What was his purpose in coming here at all? And the answer is this. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten he that is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. You see, man can't arrive at God. God being God and everlasting and absolute in all his attributes. He's beyond man and he's holy and man is sinful. Man can never arrive at the knowledge of God. So God, in his infinite condescension, has been pleased to give a revelation of himself. He did so through the Jews, through the law of Moses, through the prophets. But God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past, to the fathers through the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. This is what it means. God has sent his only Son into this world. What for? In order that mankind might come to know God, that he might no longer be an unknown God, but the known God. This is the person who said, He who hath seen me hath seen the Father. He said, No man hath ascended up into heaven save the Son of Man that is in heaven. He says, you can't climb to heaven. But he says, I've come down from heaven to give you the knowledge and the information. So the apostle looking at these men of Athens said, listen to me. 
There is one way only to get to know God and the truth about God, and it's all in this Jesus who has risen from the dead, proving he is the Son of God. He's come out from God. He's gone back to God. But he came into this world to tell us about this God. And what has he told us? Well, said the apostle, he is the only God. The other gods you've been worshipping are no gods at all. You see, he said, the Godhead is not like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and men's device. That was the character of their gods. They'd made gods out of these precious metals, and then they bowed before them and worshipped them. They said, what? He said, what a conception of the Godhead. Nonsense. This is idolatry. These are no gods. You've been deluding yourselves. You're fools. This is superstition. This is make-believe. This is nonsense. This is a lie. No, no, he said. There's only one God. And as he proceeds to tell them, he is the creator. God, he said, is neither worshipped with men's hands. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with men with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. This is what Jesus has taught us, that there is only one God, the only true and living God, the everlasting God, and he is the God who has made everything, God the creator. He is the God who at the beginning created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. He is the one who's made this world, who started this time process in which we live. He's from eternity to eternity, but he decided to create the world and to create men. And he's done so. He is the creator. He's over all, blessed over all, the everlasting God, the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And you can't make him and move him from one place to another and think he's confined to a temple. He made all. He controls all. He's the governor of the whole universe. Not only that, he says, we all have derived our being from him and we can't live without him. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said and have discovered, we are all his offspring. That is what this Jesus has taught us, says Paul. But he hasn't only taught us that. He has taught us that this God is a lawgiver. That he is a God who is to be worshipped. He demands it. He has made us and not we ourselves. And he demands our worship. He is a righteous God. He made us in his own image. He made us for companionship with himself. And he demands of us worship. He asks that we should praise him and pay homage to him. He's entitled to do it. We are very ready to pay homage to others. The Athenians paid great homage to their philosophers. They bowed before them. They sat and they listened to them. And they believed their every word. They admired them. They heaped their honors upon them. There's nothing wrong in that. It's very right. Well, says the apostle, this great God who's made everything... He asks that men should believe in him and worship him and live to his praise and do what he's asked him to do and keep his laws and manifest his glory. That's the God whom Christ has revealed. This Jesus has shown forth, says the apostle. 
God the creator. God the controller and the sustainer of the universe. The God who desires the worship of men. Yes, and you notice something further. The God who has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that man whom he hath appointed. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. What's it mean? Well, it means this. This is the message of Jesus in the resurrection. God is the creator and the controller of everything. He's made the world for himself. He has started, I say, this time process. And he is going to stop the time process. He has appointed a day. As there was a beginning, there is going to be an end. This is what Jesus taught, and he's come from God. He is the Son of God. He's proved it in the resurrection. And this is what he teaches. A day has been appointed. When there shall be an end to this universe, an end to life as we now know it, and when that day comes, there is to be a great judgment. As this Jesus rose from the dead, everybody who's ever lived in this world will rise and will stand before this almighty God in the judgment. The times of this ignorance God winked at. The times when he allowed men to worship idols... That's ended. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. How do you know that, says someone? Well, says the apostle, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised Jesus from the dead. That's what the resurrection means. That is what it's announcing. It's a guarantee of that. That God is going to raise from the dead every one of us, everybody who's ever lived or whoever shall live in this world, and we shall all stand before God in judgment. But you say, I don't believe that. My dear friend, I don't suppose you do. The Stoics and the Epicureans didn't. People have never believed this, you know. The world has never liked this. It's always objected. There's nothing new in your position whatsoever. This has always been a hateful message. But we're not concerned about whether it's hateful or not. The question is, is it true or not? And you see, you and I are left in this position. You can either go home tonight believing in the theories and the suppositions of the Stoics and the Epicureans who weave their philosophies out of the web of their own minds and out of their own ignorance and superstition and darkness. Or else you can listen to the testimony of one who's been in this world as you were in it at this moment and who died in it and who was buried in it but who rose from the grave, appeared to men and has ascended unto heaven and is there now and is coming back. It's one or the other. This is what he teaches. He said it himself. You'll find the teaching set out very plainly in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Listen to this. 
For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. This is this Jesus speaking. For the Father judgeth no men, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's his own statement, and the apostle is but repeating it. Very well, my friend, this is the message. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a proclamation not only of the fact that he is the Son of God, but that you and I are also going to rise from the dead and from the grave and stand before the everlasting God in judgment. What's he going to judge me on? What will be the terms of the judgment? He will judge the world in righteousness. There'll be nothing unfair about it. It'll be absolutely just. What will be the terms? Well, the terms I've already given you. God the Almighty, having made us for himself, has only asked that we should worship him. He wants us to love him. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That's the first and the chiefest commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And you know, you and I are going to be judged on that. My dear friends, is it surprising that this apostle was stirred in his spirit in Athens? He saw these men spending their time hearing the latest tidbit. Have you heard this one? What do you think of that? What do you think of this joke? What do you think of that new philosophy? Stoics, Epicureans, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. And he knew that every one of them would have to stand before God in the judgment. He couldn't keep still. He felt responsible for their souls. He knew the facts. Christ had revealed it to him on the road to Damascus. God is the judge, and he's going to judge everybody. And he'll judge us on our relationship to him as to whether we've lived to his glory or not. Now, you won't be judged only on how you've lived. You see, it won't help you to say, oh, I never got drunk. I never committed adultery. I wasn't a fornicator. I never committed murder. It won't be of any interest to God. What God wants to know is this. Have you lived entirely to his glory? Have you worshipped him? Have you praised him? Have you obeyed him? Have you glorified him? And if you haven't, you're a sinner. You're deserving of punishment and of hell, and God has announced that to you. That's what the apostle told them. He said the proof of all this is the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And then I read, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They stopped the preaching. They broke up the meeting, and they went away. Oh, what a tragedy. What if I let you go like that this evening? What if I stood here and said the message of Easter Day is this, that God is and is the only God, that he's made us and not we ourselves, that our lives are in his hands, that he could end our life at any moment he chooses, that we've all got to die and after death stand before him in the judgment, and that the question is this, have you loved the Lord, you are God, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? And if you haven't, you're condemned. 
and not only condemned for a day or a month or a year or for the period of your life, but condemned through all eternity without end. What if I left you like that? They broke up the meeting. They were so furious at this talk about the resurrection. They didn't want to get, they stopped it. The meeting broke up and they scattered. Oh, fools and blind. Why didn't they wait and ask him this question? Do you mean to say that the Son of God came into this world simply in order to pronounce judgment? And to tell us that God has committed the judgment to him and he's just here to blast us and to damn us all and to tell us there's no hope? Would God send his Son from heaven just for that? And the answer is an everlasting no. This Jesus who rose from the dead had died on Calvary's cross. Son of God, you say? Yes. Well, then why did he die? If he's the Son of God, you may ask me, why did he die? If you say God is almighty, why does he allow his Son to die? That's the right question to ask, my friend. And the answer is a very glorious one. The Son of God came into this world not only to teach us about God, not only to tell us about this judgment which is certainly coming, he came to tell us that is, there is a way in which we can already pass through that judgment in this world of time. His message condemns us, of course. We are all sinners, every one of us. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he has come to tell us this, that in our lost and helpless and hopeless condition, he can deliver us, he can save us. We've all sinned against God. Not one of us has honored him. Not one of us has kept his commandments. Not one of us has lived to his glory. And we're all under condemnation. But the Son of God, this Jesus, has taken our condemnation upon himself, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. He's not only risen, he died. He died that we might be forgiven. He gave himself an offering to God for us, that we might escape the condemnation and the everlasting death. And he's risen to represent us before God and to intercede on our behalf. That's the message. And it is the message this evening, my dear friend. As certainly as you and I are in this building at this moment, we shall appear before God. Have you ever thought of it? Have you ever contemplated it? Have you realized that this is true about you, listening to Stoics and Epicureans, marveling at the cleverness of the philosophers on your brain's trust? Listening to the latest story and the latest theory and idea, eating, drinking, making merry, saying, isn't life wonderful? What great learning we've got. Why don't you write to the philosopher and ask him how to die? 
Write and ask him to give you his absolute proof that there isn't a life after death. Write and ask him for the secret of how to control your lusts and passions and never to fail again. Write and ask them that. And see what you'll get out of them. You'll get nothing at all. They don't know. They can't live decently themselves, most of them. They know nothing about death. They're utterly ignorant of what lies beyond. They can spin their theories. We can all do that. But if you want to know how to die without fear, if you want to know how to answer God in the judgment, if you want real peace while you're still in this world, if you want to know a joy that has no sorrow mixed with it, if you want a purity and a cleanliness, if you want an honesty, if you want a new life worthy of the name of life, if you want an understanding of history, of time, beginning, end, eternity. The only thing to do is what the apostle exhorted the learned Athenians to do. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Acknowledge your ignorance. Acknowledge your failure. Acknowledge your sin. Tell God that you know nothing and that you're frightened of life, that you don't know where you are. Admit it, that's repentance. Think again. Admit you're wrong. Dismiss your Stoics and Epicureans and all your philosophers and cleverness. And just say, I don't know. And they don't know. And I don't want to die like that in darkness and ignorance. Repent. God calleth all men everywhere to repent. And to believe this simple message concerning his son. You see, the message of the resurrection is this. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Stoics and the Epicureans will never bring you to a knowledge of that unknown God. Believe in Christ tonight and you'll get to know him. Not only that, he'll become your father. You'll become his child. He'll put his own nature in you. You'll have a new nature. You'll have a new start. You'll have a new beginning. He'll put his Holy Spirit in you. You'll have a strength you've never known before. You'll really begin to live. You'll begin to know peace and joy and happiness. And though men in their madness let off all their atomic bombs together and the world be blown to atoms and to nothing, you will have nothing to fear. You will already, as the Son of God has said, you will already have passed from death unto judgment, through judgment, unto life, which is life indeed which is life eternal. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent and to believe in his Son, and whosoever doeth so shall not perish, but shall have here and now everlasting life. It'll take you through death. It'll take you through the judgment. It will take you into the very presence of God, and you shall see him and spend your eternity in the glory of his presence. Have you repented? You are going to rise, my dear friend. 
you will rise from the grave. Or if you're still alive when Christ comes back, you'll see him, you'll have to face him. It is appointed unto all men everywhere to once to die and after death the judgment. God is going to judge the whole world in righteousness by this man whom he hath appointed, whereof he hath given assurance in that he hath raised him from the dead. It's almost impossible to believe it now, isn't it? But you can't believe you're going to die, can you? You can't think of yourself as dying, and yet you know perfectly well that you're going to. Read the obituary notice in the Times or whatever paper you read. Ah, you say, old so-and-so's gone. The day will come when somebody will say that about you. It's difficult to believe it, isn't it? And it's difficult to believe that you're going to rise from the dead. But if you believe that this Jesus is the Son of God and he's given proof in the resurrection that he is, believe him and you must believe that you are going to rise and be examined by God in justice and righteousness. And if you believe that, well, you won't waste a moment. You'll repent immediately and you'll believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And make sure that your sins are forgiven, that you become a child of God, and that you'll have nothing to fear in the judgment, because you are one of God's children, one of his heirs, and joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.